Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for joining me. I'm Michael Kurkowski. Welcome to The Strength Connection, where we're connecting with the top minds in the world of strength, sharing stories, insights, and experiences to help us become stronger every day. So I've got the Hebrew hammer, Alex Salkin, with me today on the podcast. One, uh, Seriously, one of my favorite people to talk to. I've been on his podcast. We've gone back and forth quite a bit over the last year. Uh, one of the strongest guys I know who has such an interesting story of how he got into his world of fitness, um, as well as developing his own online personal brand. So today I was excited to bring Alex on. We've talked a lot about strength in the past. And one of the stories that he shared with me recently was his experience of moving from building a popular brand in the United States, then moving to Israel, eventually losing almost everything that he had at that time till getting a really like a gift horse from a friend and an offer to go back to the States and rebuild his entire business after he pretty much lost it. So I was excited to talk to Alex about really the journey that he went through of not only fitness and strength, but really building his own business and then going into losing it and the experiences that he dealt with at that time of getting through. This is such an interesting conversation that we um, that we had. It was such an interesting story to hear from Alex of resiliency, of strength, of uncovering a lot of different things about yourself along the way. Um, so I know you guys are gonna get a lot out of it. So appreciate you taking the time. Without further ado, we'll get on with the show. Thanks so much for joining me. Catch you on the inside. What's up? Here we are. Alex, what's up, man? It's good to see you and you have a beautiful shirt on. Yeah, thank you. We were just discussing this before. You know, I, I was a, li- a, a little bit reticent at first to go on where, because we're wearing the same outfit. I'm assuming you're wearing jeans as well. I haven't really seen, but uh, I am not just black pants. So, oh, yeah. okay. So, okay. We look different enough. That's fine. You right now you've got on like the the spy sneaking around kind of clothes. You just need like uh, some sort of a mask to put on, and, like some gloves, and then you know maybe one of those things you listen to, like a safe cracker, Ooh. and you're you're basically gonna be like Ethan Hunt and you know, oh. Mission Impossible. Oh, there we go, right there. Yeah, the Men in Black edition. There we go, right here. So correct, correct, exactly. Well, dude, I appreciate your time. Uh, you know, I appreciate you having me. I was just on your podcast a few weeks back. When we uh, chatted a lot, which was awesome. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about off air last time was, you know, your story of how you kind of almost got out of this business from just kind of trial and error stuff. And then some serendipitous things happened. So I'm going to ask you about that story for people who are maybe unaware of, you know, of who you are, if they didn't listen to the last podcast we did with Breakthrough Secrets, um, if you can just introduce yourself of, you know, who you are, what you do and how you got into this business. Sure. First of all, if you've never heard of me, um, for shame. For shame. Uh, no, um, I. Um, it's interesting because I didn't actually think I got into the into the fitness business uh, would have been, I guess, technically speaking, like in October of 2010, because that was the time I went through my RKC. And prior to that, I had even actually during it, I had no intention of, of working as a, as a personal trainer. I did it more as like a personal challenge to myself. And, um, it, it, I, my original plan was to become a linguist. And I was like, by the time I finished my, I hadn't, by the time I became an RKC, I had still not yet finished my, my, uh, college degree, which was in English with a focus on writing and linguistics. And, um, I remember getting to that point, like got the, got the bachelor's degree. I was just had such tunnel vision on getting that. I didn't think about anything past it. But I assumed I was like, all right, I'm going to go get a master's degree in linguistics and whatever. So I finished it. And I remember I, I was kind of like, I don't even know what to do with it. I don't, I don't have any plans. I don't really have any, any, um, nothing set in stone. I'm not like 
enrolled at a, at a different school to, to do my master's degree. And I remember talking to this one professor um, who, now if you're interested in the field of biblical archaeology, you would have almost certainly heard this guy's name because he is like extraordinarily famous uh, in that world. Again, outside of it, you probably never heard of him, but his name is Rami Arav. Um, and of all places, he teaches at University of Nebraska at Omaha. I, I don't know why it's like whatever, but um, but uh, for those who are interested, he was the guy who in like the mid 80s decisively and definitively proved the location of Bethsaida, which is uh, a town. It's the fourth most mentioned town in the New Testament, I am told. Um, and there had been some speculation prior to that as to as to where it was located. But he took a team there and like, bam, you know, within within like a week or 10 days, he, he was able to prove it. Um, and, uh, so in any case, I, I had spoken to him before because I had, um, I had one last humanities credit that I had to do. My options were either do one more semester, uh, where I had to drag myself to the university to go through another humanities course in order to get my degree or, uh, find some sort of a loophole by which I could get that humanities credit without having to take another class while still paying my dues to the university. And so, what I discovered was that the university, and this is going to tie into the answer, by the way, just so you know, but, um, but because we're going to be talking about a lot of things on air that I've never talked about publicly, you're going to be getting like the exclusive the story. Exclusive, and I, want you yes. to get, I want you to get all of the story. Um, I looked through the roster back then it was in paper I don't know, or maybe not, maybe it was actually, uh, it was online, but they had as a humanities course, uh, uh, one of the options was to take a different foreign language. And I took Spanish. At, uh, at the university. So I couldn't take another Spanish course, uh, but I could take a different foreign language. And uh, I already spoke fluent Hebrew. And so uh, I was like, you know, I think they used to have Hebrew classes. Let me see if I can find that. And they didn't offer them anymore, but they were still technically on the books. So what I did was I asked somebody at the registrar's office, they were like, is there some way that I could take like a Hebrew test, which I knew I was going to ace. I was like, is there some way I could take a Hebrew test and have a Hebrew test and then have that um, counted as a humanities. And they said, yeah, you just have to find someone who can, who can uh, administer, uh, administer basically. Mm -hmm. And so there was another Israeli professor that I'd talked to earlier in the year, but because I like to wait to the last minute, uh, I waited to the last minute. And so um, I ended up talking to the, a different one. This was Rami Arav. And I went to his office and we had spoken before because we, we bumped into each other at the arts and sciences hall uh, at their uh, the kind of the front desk area. And I asked him, we sat and talked in his office for 30 minutes. I had to brag slightly because it was all in Hebrew. And, um, and I, in the end, I, I asked like, okay, so would you be, would you be willing to uh, administer like a test for me? He goes, yeah, just write about your experience uh, living on the kibbutz. A kibbutz is like a commune, basically. In mm -hmm. Israel, I lived in a commune for like six months uh, in 2009. And this was 2010. So it was still fresh in my mind. He's like 500 words. I will uh, read through it, grade it, and then we'll, we'll get it, you know, uh, put into the, into the system. So I did that, finished all that stuff up. And because I had built this rapport with him and, uh, you know, I'd gotten my humanities credit. I, I just, it was December of 2010. I finished my degree and I was feeling kind of lost. I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. And so um, because he and I uh, had gotten to know each other, I asked him if I could have a meeting with him because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next with my career. I was still pretty sure I wanted to be in academia, but now it was like 50% sure as opposed to like 90%, you know? 
And uh, I said, you know, I was thinking about taking a year off because you know, I've just been going to school like nonstop basically since kindergarten. So why not? And he said, don't take a year off because one year will turn into 10 years. And then you won't get your master's degree until, you know, you're like, uh, whatever, like 35. And then, you know, you'll, by the time you get your PhD, uh, you'll be like 40. And then it'll be impossible for you to find a job because people are going to be like, well, we don't know what he did for 10 years. You know, he just kind of disappeared. He said, but, but if you do a master's degree next, and then you do your, your, uh, your PhD, you could be done by the time you're 30. And then you could get a job in academia. He said, you know, you could get a master's degree in linguistics from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem because they would accept your degree from UNO. He said, and then you could go to the University of Chicago, which has a really good Semitic languages department. He said, and you could get your, your PhD in Semitic linguistics and because they would accept a degree from Hebrew University. They wouldn't accept it from University of Nebraska at Omaha. They said, yeah, you'd be done by, you know, age 30, you'd get a job and you could be on your way in academia. And I was like, I don't really want to do any of that stuff. Like none of that just sounds appealing to me. And so I really had to think about it. I was like, you know, I, I just, I don't want to write articles that no one's going to read for journals that nobody reads. <laughs> and th- I, I, there has to be something, you know, better that I can do with my time. And at this point, you know, I had already gotten certified as an RKC. Um, again, as a personal goal for myself, like I, I wanted to do it because I grew up very timid, kind of very shy, unsure of himself and through just pure happenstance. And this, again, it goes back to university, oddly enough. Um, I got a job in direct sales through a company called Vector Marketing, which is most famous for um, running the Cutco operations so if you're familiar with Cutco, uh, especially if you're in the midwest you're probably oh, blast from the past and the yeah, baby. <laughs> well you know it's funny because i uh, i was always told i would be good in sales like when i i worked at a fast food restaurant when i was uh, in college and um my, the, the manager was always like because i was always very friendly really mm-hmm. good with people um and he was like you'd be great in sales you know and so i uh now as a complete side note here, he one time, this is one thing, I have very few regrets in life. I regret this. One time he was like, hey, what are you doing on, and it was like Thursday. Um, he's like, I've got two tickets to, uh, there's going to be a big convention in town and Zig Ziglar is going to be speaking there. And I was like, ah, oh, I've got class and I really don't want to miss class or whatever. And, uh, and I, I didn't, I mean, I knew Zig Ziglar's name. I just didn't realize what a big deal he was. Right. And it wouldn't be until uh, Zig Ziglar will come back into the picture a little bit later, but it, it wouldn't be until probably 2016 where I started listening to Zig Ziglar every single morning as like part of a morning routine, taking notes and like trying to absorb the lessons. And I just was like, this is 2005. And I just had the opportunity to hear him speak live. Who knows what would have happened, Mike? Everything could have been different for me. But um, no, but I, I ended up uh, skipping out. It was kind of a bummer because I think it would have been, I think it would have been great. Um, but my, uh, my foray into sales ended up being when I, I, I tore off a little tab on, on a piece of paper. It said $15 an hour base pay, uh, you know, direct sales job. So I called up, you know, I set up an appointment and it was, it was for Cutco. And I had heard of Cutco before. I, I didn't know a whole lot about it. Um, interestingly enough, my dad, when I told him about it, he's like, oh, I used to sell Cutco, you know, like back in the day. Uh, so it, it was like a generational thing. I just didn't. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, but it, it was very, very difficult for me because a lot of people tell you no. And 
when you're not used to hearing that, no sounds like F you, <laughs> you know, like it's not what people were saying, but very personal. <laughs> yes, exactly. It, it seems like they're saying no to you. They're really saying no to the product or, you know, maybe your presentation didn't make it clear enough what the, what the benefits were or whatever. Um, but I did this to help kind of pay my way through uh, Israel where I was at the, where I was going to do, where I was going to study uh, on the kibbutz. I was going to study Hebrew so I can improve my Hebrew. So now we're, this is kind of like, this is a Pulp Fiction like approach to storytelling because I'm, I'm kind of like bouncing <laughs> back. And, um, and uh, so, but I stuck through because I, I really liked my, my manager, Dane, and he was always very encouraging. He was very, um, uh, very helpful. And I, I didn't want to quit because I didn't want to let him down. And so I was like, <laughs> and realistically, you know, I really, I also didn't want to let myself down, but I more people in general are more willing to let themselves down than they are to, to let other people down. So for the three months leading up to um, what ended up being my, my six-month foray at, uh, at the kibbutz, uh, I was selling Cutco. And I got better. I ended up uh, as one of the top salesmen in the office. My top salesman, I mean, there's like 20 top salesmen. I was like the 20th. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's still, I was on the board. Um, yep. And uh, and so anyway, what was really interesting is that I went through this transformation when I was selling Cutco. And the transformation was that I could, I could accept rejection and I could roll with it. And I got this new sense of self-confidence. Now, it's not like I never had to deal with frustration or ups, being upset about rejection or, or difficulties in, in the job or anything like that. But it did mean that I, I now had a new sense of my own abilities. Like I was doing things that I never thought possible. Like I realized, um, in fact, there was one thing that they taught us to do. Like they were very smart about the way that they approached teaching people who were just, you know, wet behind the ears. Mm -hmm. They first, they give you, they teach you how to go through uh, the, the um, presentations mm -hmm. because there's a whole system set up around them. And then uh, asking for the order, you know, they have a certain, certain series of things that you have to do. And then as the weeks go by, they teach you some more kind of advanced techniques that you can use. Because the other thing is that you also start off seeing your family members or your friends, parents, and you know, stuff like that, yeah. um, which is good because it's like, these are people, you know, and that you're not as likely to you know, encounter. Um, it, it's going to be easier for you to, to find out what works, what doesn't work. And then, you know, you, at the end, you always ask for, um, uh, for referrals. Right. And so, uh, one of the things they taught us to do was what they called the alley-oop. I don't know anything about basketball, but I am told that there is some sort of a resemblance. Um, basically, what you would do is you would ask for the referrals, and then they would write the referrals down. And then you would say, okay, now who do you think would be home now that we, we might be able to call just so that you can let them know that I'm going to call them? And they would say, oh, okay, you know, maybe this person. So you would call, or they would call. And then while they were on the call, you just kind of put your hands up to the phone like, like can I talk to them? And then you get on the, on the call and then you talk them and you set up the appointment. So you're not spending the next day, like trying to chase people down and mm -hmm. yep. set up appointments. And I remember that by the time I was doing that, I was like, cause I, I got a number of appointments like that. And I was like, Oh my God, like a couple months ago, I never could have done that. So this is where a huge turning point happened is eventually because my, my coach, Scott Stevens, who, by the way, he would be a very good person to have on the show because he's an extraordinarily interesting guy. Um, but he, from the very beginning, was encouraging me to, to become an RKC. And I was like, nah, I couldn't do that, man. Like, that's three days of just, like, torture. I, I just, I'm not, I couldn't do it. But by the time I was able to do all these other things that I didn't previously think I could do, 
I suddenly, I was like, you know, I can convince a complete stranger to let me come over to their house with a bag full of sharp knives and they'll do it. Like, of course I can do a snatch test. You know, of course I can pass the RKC. Like I, I owe it to myself to do this. So it became a personal challenge for myself. It wasn't a career path as, as I saw, but it was a personal challenge. And then now we get back to the, you know, finishing up the degree thing, right? Um, and um, I had this, this uh, certification as a kettlebell instructor. Uh, at this point, I was working as a waiter at a Mexican restaurant. So that's kind of how I was making most of my, my living. And, um, and I started to get, there was a gal, I put my, my profile up on Dragondor's website and a gal who lived not terribly far from me reached out because she had read The 4-Hour Body. And she was captivated by Tracy Rifkin's incredible 110, 120-pound weight loss yep. just through kettlebell swing. Mm-hmm. She's like, I want to learn the kettlebell swing. And so I was like, okay, well, great. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be happy to come over and, and train you. And so I, you know, we would do, I think, once or twice a week, I would, I would come over, I'd bring my kettlebells, and I would train her. And I was making like, you know, I think 40 or 50 bucks an hour, which was like a huge leap Bonkers forward at that point. Yeah. yeah, exactly. At that point, it was like just un- unthinkable. And then um, when I was working at this, at this Mexican restaurant, one of my coworkers, a gal named Jamie said, Oh, you know what? I know this couple. They're looking uh, to do uh, like to do some in- in-house fitness classes for themselves. And would you be, uh, would you be interested in talking to them? And I was like, well, yeah, absolutely. So I started doing, uh, I started taking on uh, them as, as clientele as well. And um, I was really enjoying it. I really found like, you know, I'm, I'm making a difference by helping people to get stronger and move better. And I was learning a lot about how to, how to really teach. Because, you know, in the certifications, like you technically learn the progressions, but it's not until you're really out in, uh, in the real world that you kind of really learn how to, how to teach people, yes. you know, on mass as it is. And that's just the way that it is. It's not a not a criticism of the, of the uh, system. Um, and then, you know, a- along the way, I, I picked up another, uh, another student who uh, it was the wife of a friend of mine. And uh, I would meet up and train. And she was uh, very, she got really into kettlebell training. And so she's like, you know, I should try to get my boss. Um, and I'm going to try to get my boss to, to get in on this. I'm going to try to convince her. And so she set up a meeting with her and I should mention that she worked at uh, a local TV station and the boss was like the regional manager in charge of all sorts of TV stations. So I ended up training the boss and, uh, and she was, you know, she was like 50 years old, um, petite, had never really done strength training before took her, you know, from not being very strong, being able to do multiple chin-ups in a row, like legit full, like dead hang at the bottom, all the chin over the top, you know, really cool stuff. And uh, eventually started up a, a, uh, a group fitness class in, in, the, uh, in the TV station. And at this point, I was like, okay, I'm really, I've, I've got a lot of momentum uh, built up. And uh, I was still making good money at the Mexican restaurant, but I was like, you know what? If I don't make a, a move now, the momentum is going to slow down eventually. So I quit working at the Mexican restaurant and uh, started just doing training full-time. And by this point, this is about 2012. Um, and, uh, or two, yeah, 2012, kind of end of 2012. Yeah, roughly thereabouts. Uh, midway through, I believe, actually. And then in early 2013, I made Aliyah, meaning I, I became a, a citizen of Israel. And so I moved to Israel. 
And everybody told me I shouldn't do it. My parents didn't. My parents were supportive, but I had friends who were like, ah, oh, look, you know, like your, your brand is starting to grow here in the US. You know, like people, people have heard of you now. Like you're making a big mistake if, if you move. And uh, I was like, maybe they're right, but probably not. So I'm not going to listen. And so I, I, I moved to Israel and I, uh, there was, it was a bumpy path on the way. It definitely was because it's not, being an immigrant, surprise, surprise, is not easy. <laughs> like, it does, doesn't matter where. It's uh, just a lot that goes into it. Uh, and then I started my, my career in Israel. And then, and really, that's when things took off. Not, not immediately. I mean, it took probably about a year of trying to hit the ground running and mostly rolling and tumbling. Um, but by the time I got in the foothold, I, I was, I felt like I was unstoppable. You know, it's crazy that you can, you know, in hearing your story, you can trace your going into the RKC and that challenge directly from, from direct sales in Cutco Knives. Yeah. Because I said for, I had a, I had a cousin who I remember when he was young, I said, get into direct sales and get a restaurant job at some point. Like if you, if everybody does those two jobs, like you can learn a lot about yourself and how quickly that you can overcome objective really yeah. fast, you know, from that. And it is, it's kind of fascinating that you kind of built up a little bit of the callus in your mind of that challenge of just being, because RKC, especially back then from now, I mean, the curriculum of getting into strong first, I don't know much about RKC as much because I moved over in 2012, yeah, same, same as you, but back then, I mean, a lot of people went just for the, the challenge of it. They weren't like, I remember like probably, you know, 30, 40 out of the hundred people that were at my first certification, they were not they were just students of people who just wanted to accept the challenge. They weren't coaches trying to make this a career because it was a weekend of like, can I overcome? Can I, can I hold up to all of the shit that's yeah. going to come at me from Pavel and from all those guys, which was kind of really, they called it the rite of passage. It was kind of really interesting. So it is funny how like your, your sales work from that actually kind of sparked all this into, you know, the next venture of business and into the career now. Yeah, and it's funny you should say that too, because I remember going there and thinking like, wow, people are actually going to become coaches. Like, you know, like I think instinctively <laughs> I knew that I, was just, I wasn't there for that purpose. And so, uh, and there were people who are already coaches and that sort of a thing. But, um, but my mind, the way I saw it was that it was like the Russian kettlebell challenge. It was there to be like a challenge where you prove yourself. Yes. And, um, and so, yeah, I really was, on, was not on my mind to become a trainer at that time, but it, en it ended up being the thing that I would, uh, that I would do. But yeah, it's very true. People, people went there because they wanted the challenge and obviously people wanted to become coaches too. But it's funny. I remember, I, I, I hope I can track the video down one day, but back then Amanda Salas, who is now a, a big time anchor in Los Angeles, actually, she was at the time uh, the head of Dragon Door TV. So she was like a, she had had a reporter, I think a reporting background and journalistic background. And uh, so one of the things she would do, I believe on the side, I don't think it was her full-time gig, uh, was Dragon Door TV. And so they would yes. do these certifications and then, you know, she and her, and her cameraman would come in and, and I remember she interviewed me. She said, what are you looking forward to the most? And I said, all the pain. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you know, and it's funny because now I wouldn't say that because I'm like, you know, like, oh God, you know, like I, I don't want to be so, so sore. I can't move in the morning. But back then it was just kind of like, you know, like, throw me into the fire and I'm going to, I'm going to come out of it, you know, uh, sharper on the other end. Yes, it was, it was, it was interesting back then. And I, that's why I love talking to you because you kind of started a similar path that I did, like, yeah. only, like in 2010. And I remember like that first one we had, 
you know, 70 plus or 80 plus instructors and they would bring the, they call them the victims on the last day where you had to come in and actually work with people like in this little gym to, to see that now would be like insane. You have people swinging kettlebells, like, you know, 70 plus instructors, plus they're working with at least another person. So 140, 150 people. And you're trying to instruct in this small little area right here. It was like half madness from there, but it all worked out. We all got, you know, we all got strong. Everybody did a great job. So yeah. it was definitely I, interesting. I like, I really liked the victim's training. I, my understanding is they really can't do it anymore just because like legal wise, there's just a lot of liability that comes with yes. it. Cause you just don't know who's coming in, but, uh, but it was, it was great while that era lasted. It is. Well, and it's interesting. Cause I mean, now the curriculum now going into level one, I mean, this is still, you know, just as challenging in many ways. It was very different. There was a militaresque almost feeling to the original RKC, yeah. you know, with, it was funny. So, but now that like, so you moved to Israel, you started, you had a brand going on in Omaha and then you yep. moved to Israel working it up. And then there got to a part, as you said, where you're almost, I don't know if it was a burnout. I don't know if it was just looking at what you wanted to do, but you almost got out of this business. Yeah. And then some stuff happened of meeting some people and kind of trying it one more time. Yeah. It's turned into a pretty interesting story. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, the fit almost hit the sham, so to speak. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, basically. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll pick things back up. So now when I, when I moved uh, to Israel in 2013, I was living in Haifa. And Haifa is a really nice city on uh, on the Mediterranean coast and up uh, up north in Israel. And um, I was in what was called like an immigrant absorption center. Uh, and I was one of the very few who uh, who really spoke good Hebrew. But um, so a lot of people who were there were there. Part and parcel of it was like an intensive Hebrew language program. And so, um, again, you know, to toot my own horn just a little bit. I, I tested into the highest level. Hebrew that they had, but it was actually a level that I had gone through at the kibbutz. It was basically the same thing. So for me, it was like five hours a day in a classroom that where I was like, I understood everything. And I, you know, I, w- I would write down new vocabulary words that, as they came along, but I knew all the grammatical concepts. Like I, I was just, I, I'm a geek about languages. I really like foreign languages a lot. Did you and, grow up speaking Hebrew or did you just pick it up, you know, really quickly? Oh, well, I'll, we'll go on a quick sidebar here. Um, no, I actually taught myself how to speak Hebrew. Um, now I did have Hebrew lessons as a kid. We I went to Hebrew school. And so I learned the rudiments of, of Hebrew. Like, you know, I could, uh, I knew the alphabet. I knew like the, the diacritical marks that tell you how to pronounce it because Hebrew is a, a language that doesn't have, um, written vowels. Now right. there are certain letters that kind of quasi function as vowels for anybody who, who really cares to know, but generally speaking, the vowel mark is, um, if you were to read an Israeli newspaper, unless it's something where the word might have an alternate meaning, they don't include the, the vowel marks. Everything is, is vowel free. So you just have to kind of know how it sounds. Mm-hmm. Like if there's a, a song by a uh, fallout boy called thanks for the memories. Mm-hmm. And they wrote it without vowels, for instance. So if you look, if you go and look it up online, you'll see thanks for the memories, but it's written without vowels. And that's essentially what, what reading in Hebrew is like, you know? Gotcha. Um, so there are vowel sounds, but just not, not written. And so, but, uh, so in any case, I knew the rudiments. And when I started college in 2004, I decided, you know, the world is just too exciting to go around speaking only one language. Um, I really want to learn. I want to, I want to improve my Hebrew. And, and, uh, so I had a creative writing teacher. My first class of my college career was like early September, 2004. And she said, just take out a loose leaf piece of paper because this was 
before everybody had some sort of a screen that they could, you know, stare into all the live long day. And, uh, and she's like, just write anything. You know, I just want you to, this is your time to write. So I wrote the alphabet or the, the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and, uh, and so from there it kind of grew. And I, I, uh, I ended up, I made a, a decent amount of progress. I, I looked around on the internet to try to find better resources. And I found a book called How to Learn Any Language by Barry Farber, who uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. I mean, he was in his 90s, so it's not unex- unexpected or anything. But um, he was a real language fanatic. He spoke like 26 languages to varying degrees of fluency, some of them very fluently, others more conversationally. But um, read his book, really devoured it. And then like from there, it was like, like I took steroids laced with crack time speed, you know, when it came to my, my Hebrew learning. Nice cocktail. So, there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a real, it was like a, an eight ball directly into my <laughs> language. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, yeah, the summer of 2005, I learned a, an extraordinary amount using his, his system. And um, yeah, and it was just something I was really passionate about. So I, I actually learned how to speak it on my own. Um, I, I would not recommend that to anybody because if you're young and you've got the time and the passion, it's easy. Now I, it's just so much easier to, to get outside help, like hire a tutor. Mm-hmm. I just didn't have the ability. I would have loved to, but there was no way to do that online. Like I have, you know, it's very easy to find uh, language tutors online now, especially uh, in, in foreign countries where you may not have to pay all that much and you still get really mm-hmm. quality, uh, really quality training. Um, so yeah, I, I, um, I was a real dweeb about studying Hebrew. So when I, when I was on the kibbutz, we'll go back to that briefly. I tested into the highest level that they had there, which was uh, called Kitad Dalit, which means just class D basically, uh, or fourth grade, you might say. Like it doesn't sound impressive, but uh, there aren't too many levels of Hebrew after that. So it was actually pretty good. Um, and that was basically what they had at the, at the Immigrant Absorption Center in 2013, so about four years after the fact. And, um, yeah, I ended up, you know, I, at the midterm, I it was like, I was done in 30 minutes and it was like a four hour test. So this is, again, this actually is not me bragging. It's like, if you were to take a, like a, a test intended for, you know, people who are, uh, English language learners, you would probably blow through it very quickly too. Right. But I just, I came like very well prepared. Um, but after I left there, my plan was to go to Tel Aviv and live in Tel Aviv and be a personal trainer there. The thing, I, I just didn't really have any connections in Tel Aviv, oddly enough. Now, through a, a series of uh, just very lucky happenstances, somebody, recommend, uh, somebody recommended to me, it was actually a, a colleague recommended one of his old students who recommended somebody that she knew to me. It was a, a, a woman who had uh, grown up in the U.S. and, and moved to Israel um, when she was a bit older, uh, named Dara. She was a physical therapist, and she wanted to learn how to use kettlebells. So I was like, okay, well, I'm in Haifa. And she was in Jerusalem, um, in fact, just outside Jerusalem. So I was like, yeah, just come up to Haifa and I'll teach you. And, and that's like a two-hour drive. So, I mean, like she really, you know, was very, very devoted. Mm-hmm. And I remember training her kind of like by the beach side and uh, we struck up a great conversation. And she kind of started to kind of nudge me to move to Jerusalem. And uh, I was like, yeah, probably not. Um, so got toward the end of my time in Haifa and I was, I was looking for jobs in, in Tel Aviv and I didn't have the, the requisite credentials because you have to have like a very specific um, uh, certificate from like their uh, physical education school called Wingate. And I didn't have that. And so it's like, nobody's going to hire you if you don't have that. And uh, so I was like, 
I posted something on Facebook, like, Hey, does anybody know of any, you know, any job openings for a personal trainer in Tel Aviv? She's like, she messaged me. She's like, well, what about Jerusalem? And she's like, you know, if you come here, I can recommend my old uh, physical therapy clients to you. Uh, and, you know, at this point, like I, I, I had, uh, I had started with original strength before it was even called original strength back then it was still called becoming bulletproof. And, um, I had been at the second ever, uh, workshop that they had, that they offered. And so I, you know, I, and I did primal move too. So I knew a bit about, you know, the human movement and, and that sort of a thing. And so, and she knew that, and she saw that plus my understanding of the importance of proper movement and good technique. And thought that I would be a good candidate to to move to Jerusalem, and so I thought, you know what, all right, fine. Um, but I knew it was going to take time to build it up, so I did what anybody would do. And I, uh, I, she told me, you know, I know somebody who runs a French restaurant in Jerusalem, like the fanciest restaurant in Jerusalem. She's like, you can work there until you get on your feet with you know personal training. And I was like, uh, but she's like, I'll, I'll 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 make the connection so that you can talk to the owner. The owner was a uh, guy who very nice guy was willing to give me a shot. And uh, I'm not going to go into all, all the story of the restaurant, but I was miserable. There, it was nothing that, that had nothing to do with the, the owner, had nothing to do with the staff. They were all great, but it was like, I'm here for a reason. I want to try to strengthen the Jewish nation and people. Right. And I, I, I'm not going to do that by serving overpriced French food. No offense. I'm not mentioning the restaurant. <laughs> Nobody can get offended. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was just, I remember for like two months, I was just like, completely miserable and um you know i uh I, but eventually the the uh the people started coming in she started sending me uh more and more people who would actually you know uh were very interested in in doing some training and i quit the restaurant after like two months and i, I had nothing this was not like when i was working at the tv station and my first check was for like two thousand mm-hmm. dollars you know for the the group fitness thing where it's like okay you know i've never seen the check that big at the mm-hmm. time this time i mean it was like i had enough money saved up from you know uh, that i could i could live off of for a little while um from the u.s like not mm-hmm. even from the restaurant because i made just so unbelievably little you know and again it's not we're not talking trash about the restaurant i just i didn't work full time it was part time right. it was you know worked on tips and i sucked as a waiter there because i just <laughs> did not want to be there um and so it was like i mean legit probably from i want to say end of 20 end of 2013 throughout almost the entirety of 2014 was just it was it sucked i mean it was a grind uh just not all that much fun uh i mean i had to i had to scrimp for everything but by 2015 i had really hit my stride and i was in 2015 things picked up really quickly and um I, uh, I had this kind of unspoken policy that if anybody ever asked me if I would teach a workshop somewhere, I would just say yes. And as luck would have it, I, I, had, I was very in demand in 2015 uh, for, uh, for teaching workshops. And so uh, my friend, Pavel Matsek, uh, have you had him on the show yet? Uh, I've talked to him a couple times on Breakthrough Secrets, and we're going to oh, get yeah. him back on at this one. For that, one of the greatest guys I've ever talked to in my life. Yeah, he's, he's, he's unbelievable. Uh, no, he, he's in every in every sense of the word. Actually, he's 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 phenomenal. In fact, yes. he um, he brought me out to the Czech Republic to teach about straight arm strength training, like gymnastics style strength training. And uh, so 
put together a workshop manual, put together like a curriculum that we're going to cover, just some basic straight arm strength movements. And uh, first day sold out. And so we opened up a second day uh, and that one didn't quite sell out, but it was very close. I mean, it was just like a very, very, uh, very popular uh, offering. And so I got a chance to go out there and teach. And I had, I had been out there to teach once before. I had been to Prague before because I went there for my birthday in 2014. I got to, I had met Pavel prior to that because he and I were at the SFG2. We did our SFG2 together um, in, in Italy. And um, so I met him there and um, met him again in Prague for my birthday. And then met him again a month later for the first ori original strength workshop in Europe. I was teaching with Jeff Newport and Joe Sandalone. Um, they did a great job. I sucked. I was like a complete wreck. I just, you know, like, I was a couple of great guys to tag on with though. Like they're that, well, that's why they were just yeah. like, such, like giants, you know? Yes. And, uh, uh, you know, and so uh, Jeff talked to me afterward and kind of helped me figure out how to, you know, how to, how to teach a little better in, in front of a crowd, the size that we had there. Cause it mm -hmm. was just, you know, um, but, but even prior to that, it was, or no, I take that back. Okay. That was the first time. And then in, in May of 2015, that was when, that was in 2014, May of 2015, Pavel had me out to teach the uh, gymnastics to the people, as we called it. We did this, this straight arm uh, strength training. From there, a guy uh, from Bratislava in Slovakia was like, would you like to teach this in Slovakia as well? And I was like, yeah, why not? Let's be in touch. Um, then, uh, yeah, I and then I had somebody reach out from Australia. I was like, hey, do you want to teach some calisthenics in, in Australia? And I was like, yeah, why not? Let's do it. You know, um, so I was abroad a lot of times in, in 2015 and mm -hmm. that things were going very well. And as the old saying goes, when things are going very well, there's only one thing that you can do and that's screw it up. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, uh, I proceeded to do that. And, and it was not, it was not something that I had, it, like with anything, it's something that it kind of happens like slowly over time. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I, maybe I didn't even tell you what the, what the nature of it was. I think maybe I just told you kind of like the, the end of, of yeah the you told me the result to pause it really quick on that like yeah. around this time in 2015 was it was this type of training was it relatively just new to the area a lot and kind of taking it taking advantage of an opportunity like that because well, go, go ahead sorry i don't want to interrupt no it's i'm just i'm thinking through it just because um i mean i've kept as into the community as possible since i've been here of stuff and i know you know, Strong First Italy got huge and a lot of this other, I didn't know of OS uh, with that, which is a fascinating program. I got a chance to talk to Tim Anderson, as I told yeah. you, which is uh, fantastic. But it seemed like right around that time, like the, the middle of the 2010s was when, especially in, in Europe, a lot of this stuff started to blow up a lot. Like I got a chance to uh, work with um, Bruno Castro in 2016 in Brazil and everything was blowing up down there in South America. And I think that yeah. all stemmed because everything was going crazy in Europe at the time. That very well could be, you know, I'm not really hundred percent sure. I, what I think a lot of it has to do with is, is that like, you know, keep in mind, you know, like straight arm strength training was not like a hit around the board because the average person just doesn't know what it is. But in our niche, it certainly was. There was like a time when there was an increased amount of interest. And I guess I don't really know what precipitated it. Like I had gotten into straight arm strength training in probably the earliest would have been in, in earnest, let's say in 2011, because I started doing 
uh, a lot of like LSIT work. And I was doing some other calisthenic stuff that was very, um, uh, like people just hadn't really seen it before. And I, because I'd read Convict Conditioning 2, uh, which was, I mean, I have to say, I think it's Paul Wade's best in the series. Like the, all the convict conditioning books are really good. Convict conditioning too is like, uh, I really think it's his magnum opus. The, again, like I said, the, the ones that he wrote after that and the one he wrote before, phenomenal. That one was just like the peak. Yeah, if he and, really exists. So. Yeah, exactly. I, I actually, <laughs> I, I do think he does. And I can't tell you why on the air, but I can, I can give you a pretty convincing reason why yeah. off the air. I, but I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, just yeah, thrown around joking. I believe he is people. So no, certainly, but, but, it, but it is a huge debate and it has been, for yes. but, um, but I, I'll tell you off there. So, uh, cause there's certain things that I just, you know, like I can divulge all sorts of things. Absolutely. But I, that, I don't want you I, looking I, over your shoulder. I promise. No, correct. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, at any rate, um, I, uh, so I had gotten into it before and then I got a copy of, um, uh, building the gymnastics body by Christopher summer. And I would just devoured it. And so in, in most of 2013, uh, after I'd moved to, to uh, Haifa, I skipped class because after I, I had you know, just annihilated the midterm for Hebrew, I was like, I do not need to be here. So I would just go to the beach in the morning. I would work out like on their, on their pull-up bars and dip bars or whatever. And so I was doing all sorts of straight arm strength training stuff. And um, you know, I ended up finding that I could do some really crazy like oddball stuff. Like I could do a SOTS press with a pair of 28 kilo bells, which was... At, at like maybe 160 pounds of body weight, which is absurd. What? Wow. Yes. Uh, there's a, there's a video. It's a, it's a, it's a very ugly press, but it was like definitely the most max effort thing I've ever done. I think it took me 13 seconds to lock out. Um, it was just hard as hell. Um, and I did it in my underwear too. So folks, if you're going to watch it, just, you know, rest oh, assured, you're going to see this. Let's the... make that go viral. Everybody. Yes, <laughs> please. Um, so but at any rate, um, and I, had, I didn't practice socks presses. I'd only tried them once as kind of a, as a joke. And I did a pair of 16s and I was like, oh, that was really hard. Um, and then this was several months later. So I found, you know, this, all the straight arm work that I'd been doing was, was paying off in dividends. And so I was really enthusiastic about it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure I spoke with Pavel about it at some point. And so he had me out uh, to, to teach it. And so that, that brings us back to, you know, May of 2015 and, and all that. Um, but yeah, and then later in the year, I got a chance to go to Australia to teach as well. Uh, still, I would say probably the best trip I've, I've ever made of any place ever. Australia was just so much fun. Um, but like I said, when things are going well, one of two things can happen. You can either continue to coax it in that direction or much more common, you can screw it up. And so I, I chose the latter because I was young and I, I just didn't know any better. But uh, I started and I want to. I'm going to preface this by saying that uh, uh, I am not going to talk trash about anybody. I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. Okay. But I started dating a gal that I had. Uh, um, we had started talking on Instagram. We were in kind of the same world. She was very interested in, in kettlebell training and strength training and what have you. And she lived in a, in a central European country that I would fly to regularly. Like I had plans at one point to actually be in said country. And so I, I proposed that. I was like, well, you know, I'm going to be there anyway. So, you know, how about we meet up and, you know, hang out or whatever. We really hit it off. Things were, things went uh, very well. And, you know, um, I think with any, uh, with any such experience, when you meet somebody that you, that you really like, um, it, you have to be very clear about who you are as a person and what your own goals are and what your own ambitions are. And you can't be too 
uh, quick to let those things go for the sake of somebody else. I think that if it's really meant to be, you should be able to continue going down the path you're on and not uh, not break away, not break away from that path. Yes. She never, she never asked me to do that. I, I want to make that very clear. So I'm not blaming anything on her. I take hundred percent responsibility, but you know, because I really liked her and I was willing to overlook certain red flags that presented themselves. Um, because you know, when, when you're in love, red flags look like six flags. Yes. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, uh, what happened was, you know, a lot of the opportunities that I had to go and teach abroad, uh, I, I wasn't seeking them out anymore. So I wasn't seeking out, you know, going and, and expanding my brand even further and, and what have you. Because um, I was just trying to make sure that I was going uh, to, to Europe more regularly to, to see her. And, uh, you know, as time went on, it was like I was neglecting more and more the thing that I had spent all this time building up. And uh, so ultimately, the goal then was that I was going to move to this country and I was going to become an English teacher so that I could, I could be with her. And the only way, now I had an online business at the time. It was very fledgling. Um, I had my inner circle, which exists to this day. It's a monthly uh, paid newsletter where I, I dive into a you know, different topic um, each month. And there's a, a, a program and everything. And I'm not trying to sell people on the inner circle. I'm just giving them an idea of, of what it was. So I, I did have, uh, back in 2016, I had begun the online portion of my business. But as it turns out, uh, in the European Union, um, you, if you, unless you have some sort of like a residency permit, you can only be there for 90 days out of 180 days. So that would mean if I did not have like a work permit or something like that, I would be there illegally for, you know, half the time, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I went, I got, I actually got hired at a, at a very well-known uh, English language teaching uh, company. And I think they have branches in a variety of countries as well. And uh, it was, and, and so at this time, it was kind of like I was not taking on any new clients. I had started uh, introducing my other clients, or my, uh, my, my current clients, to uh, the guy who would become my replacement, a friend of mine named David Ben Moshe, who had just moved to Israel at the time. And by the way, he would be another good guy to get on, uh, just as a complete side note. He's, he's a very interesting guy. So I was, I was introducing my old students to him. And so I thought, okay, this is a perfect way to wrap things up. I'm not leave, leaving anybody high and dry. I'm going to go, you know, to, uh, to Europe and then live happily ever after. And then it was about what would have been maybe three to four weeks before I ostensibly would have moved. She was like, yeah, I don't really want you to move here anymore. And, uh, and you know, I, I had, at this point, I had basically shuttered my business. I really only had enough people I didn't have like a physical location. I would actually go to people's place to train them. So I'm saying this metaphorically, but I really only was making enough to keep the lights on. Uh, my lease in my apartment had ended. So I was living with friends and I was bouncing back and forth between several different places because, you know, sometimes people would have company and then I would have to go sleep someplace else. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, it was, so it was very, uh, people used the word humbling, like left and right. And I hate it. Like I've, I've talked about this before. People say humbled and honored, like, these two things are just completely mutually exclusive, number one. Number two, that's not usually what they mean. But I really, it was a very humbling experience to know that everything was gone, practically. I had only a, a few things that I could hold on to anymore because I, my, in order for me to rebuild my, my um, training practice to where it had been before would have taken probably two years because that's <laughs> what it roughly took in order for me to have a decent number of, of, 
of uh, students to begin with. Um, so I was like, it was the only time in my life where I felt like I was at a crossroads and I didn't know where either of the roads went because the way I saw it is I could either uh, move to Rishon LeZion, which is a, in uh, central Israel, where a friend of mine owned a gym, you know, get a job working there and then just kind of, you know, fade away. Mm-hmm. And, and the other option is I thought, well, maybe I'll move to Berlin, teach English because this is the path that I've started down and uh, just kind of fade away. And so I, I didn't think, I, I thought, you know, I'll keep, I'll keep doing the inner circle because I don't want to let go of that. But it just seemed like it was going to be something that I was doing out of, out of uh, obligation because I'm very much a person who, when I start something, I, I will see it through to the bitter end, which is, uh, on the one hand, it's a good trait to have, especially if you want to be an entrepreneur. But if you want to be in a relationship, sometimes you got to realize that the bitter end is a lot more bitter than you would think. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I said, a lot of the a lot of the signs that I should have just you know cut my losses and run happened probably a year and a half before, and I was with this gal for about two years. And again, I'm not I'm not saying anything, to, uh, not blaming her because right, I made right. these decisions. And, um, you know, I don't expect anybody to stand up and be like, oh, you should really do this. Least of all her, you know, it was not her job to do that. Um, but again, it's like when you really love somebody, it's, it can be much easier to overlook the things and say, you know what, we can deal with that at a different time. Maybe this won't be such a problem, but it, it doesn't really work like that. So, um, yeah, so I was really, I was really at a loss. I, I was just in a kind of a holding pattern. I had no clue what I was going to do next. And uh, my friend, Pat Flynn, uh, I, I had known him for many years and I'll give you just a quick backstory. He and I had been in contact for uh, at least since 2012. And we had plans to, to do like an ebook together. And, you know, we'd been in contact. We kind of started working on the ebook and, and I met him for the first time in 2014 when I was in uh, New York for the, the first original strength certification in New York city. And he lived in Pennsylvania at the time. And so it was like a two hour train ride to, you know, to where he lived. And he was like, well, if you're going to be on the East coast, you know, come out and visit, you know, you can, you can stay with me and Christine and, you know, and what have you. And their, their first son had just been born. Um, and uh, I was like, yeah, okay, great. I'll, I'll come out and I'll visit. It'll be, you know, it'll be a fun time. We had a blast, you know, I hung out with them for a good couple of days and, you know, we just had a, a ton of fun. And as it turned out, uh, I would be there again in, I think maybe April of 2014 and so I went there and, and uh, again, because he was going to be doing a workshop called Killing It With Kettlebells, which is a mix of teaching, you know, the, uh, refining the kettlebell skills, but then also teaching you how to be a more effective businessman in the world of, of personal training. So I went there and I assisted at the, at the workshop. And again, we just got along famously. We had just had so much fun. And so it became kind of a tradition. I would see him every time I would come back to the States because I always flew through uh, JFK in New York. And... Uh, so now fast forward to 2017, um, like, you know, everything had crumbled before me and it was looking really, really likely that I was just going to have to, you know, uh, again, not uh, quit everything, but just sort of fade away. Like that just seemed like that was what was going to happen. And I, I didn't have a lot of business acumen other than my, my background in, in uh, uh, Cutco, for instance. Right. And so, yeah, I was just like, I guess this is it. And, uh, and I, I was kind of just accepting that this was probably going to be my fate. And the only thing, the only real thread that I was holding on to 
was the inner circle because I didn't want to give that up. I felt like, again, because I see things through to the bitter end for better or for worse. And uh, it seemed like, okay, well, this is, this is just the way it's going to have to be. So at one point, Pat and I would talk pretty regularly, even when I, when I lived in Israel and uh, yeah, so he's like, yeah, how are you doing? And I was like, ah, yeah, you know, uh, so-and-so left me. And he's like, oh man, I'm really sorry to hear that. And then he's like, so we got on a call and, oh, it was on the call that I mentioned. And he's like, well, listen, how about this? What if you move to Pennsylvania? You can stay with me and Christine as long as you need to get on your feet and I will help you with your online business. And I was like, let me get back to you on that. <laughs> because, uh, you know, when it rains, it pours. And it's like, you know, I had just gotten out of one relationship and, you know, there were... I'm a man, so my eyes are still like, you know, window shopping, like, you know, for other women. And there was one gal uh, who I thought was, was very cool. And I was like, I need to ask her out on a date because I'm going to hate myself if I don't do it. Again, bitter end kind of a person. It was like, I, I absolutely have to do it. So I asked her on a date. She said, no. I said, Pat, let's do it. <laughs> I'm coming to Pennsylvania. And, Shout uh, out to that girl. Awesome. <laughs> yes. Much appreciated. And, I, and I, I do still hear from her from time to time. She's a very nice gal. She was just um, I think she was also, I mean, number one, she's not interested. I'm not going to you know, make any excuses, yeah. but I, she just didn't see me in the, in the, you know, the dating kind of way, which was very, very fortunate for me. But it was that moment, that, that rejection that I was like, you know what, I can't be focusing on, on you know, just trying to replace this, this other gal. I, I really need to get my life back on track. And, um, and then, like I said, when it rains, it pours. There was another gal that I had known for many years, and I had uh, actually taught her English, believe it or not. Um, when she was uh, uh, first moved to, to Israel. And uh, I had always kind of had a crush on her. And I didn't know she had a crush on me, but she had a boyfriend. So for me, it was like, I was still, you know, nothing but professional, like never, you know, um, uh, it was never going to be anything other than just professional because I wasn't going to get in the way of somebody else's relationship. But she was at, at that point kind of on the outs with him. And she had basically already decided that they were going to break up. And so, you know, we started to hang out. Nothing happened because, I, again, I was like, you know, they're still dating. I, I can't, can't do it. And I, that was when it was really clearest to me that it was like, I really need to focus on, on getting everything back uh, to where it needed to be and uh, not taking the same steps that I've been taking, which was the path that I, it was like Luke Skywalker. You know, I hear you can go to the light side, which is going to be really hard and it's going to suck. Or you can go to the dark side, which is really easy. Your dad's already there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so it was kind of like, for me, the, the dark side, as it were, was just going to be doing the same thing that I had been doing that got me to where I was. Right. All I knew is I did not want to be where I was anymore. And it made no difference, you know, how much I liked this gal. And because she, she was a real cat, she's wonderful. Um, but it was like, I, I really, I need to go to the States and I need to, I need to do this. So, um, but it was very tough. You know, I, I arrived back into the U.S. Uh, on November 1st, 2017. Uh, and then I arrived in Pennsylvania in uh, the day after. And Pat picked me up from the train station where I had like 150 pounds worth of luggage with me because I had all my books and all this other stuff and clothing. And uh, he helped me. Uh, yeah, I mean, he helped me bring it to his place. I, I'd stayed in their, in their spare room. And his wife, I mean, his wife is the real star of the story, honestly, because, you know, any friend would do that for their friend. But for, the, for that friend's wife to be like, yeah, you know what? Like, you can stay here for a couple months. Yeah. We have three kids, but why not? You, you, had, you can stay here. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it, it, was, uh, uh, it, was, it was quite an experience. But the, what was really interesting is that even though I was at 
in many ways, uh, just a shade above square one again. I was, I felt like I, I got, I had a sense of hope. You know, I was like, okay, like I, I didn't have this opportunity in, in Israel to be around somebody who's as successful and as driven and as, you know, as focused as Pat. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to use everything I can out of this opportunity. And I, again, like the first, there's a pattern. The first two years back in the States, it sucked, right? The first year and a half, two years in Israel was really tough. Uh, but it got easier as time went on. And I started to build up my online business. Um, you know, he, I conferred with him on a lot of different things. I mean, he really, like in a very short period of time, helped me go from, you know, being entrepreneur to an entrepreneur. And uh, I, I, I was able to you know, ask him questions. You know, I was able to hang around with some of the other people in our, in our friends group, like, uh, you know, another friend of mine, Sam Sichter, who runs the Dragon Gym, a very famous mm-hmm. gym in Exton, Pennsylvania. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I was able to, uh, to use this experience um, from going to, from the brink of really just cashing my chips in because I had no other, no other choice to now where I'm doing very, very well. And um, I, I've, I've made a, some huge leaps. Uh, I, again, it's been a really long kind of rocky road to get to, to where I was going. But because I'm somebody who just, I don't want to quit at anything. It was like, it was something that I had to do. And I, and I didn't hate it at all. It's not like I did it out of just sheer, you know, obligation or mm-hmm. solemn, you know, whatever. Um, it was something that I felt like this is the impact that I, I want to make on the world. I want to, I want people to know, like I who grew up as this sort of goofy and awkward, unathletic person through a lot of hard won, uh, you know, uh, experiences and, and research, I was able to figure out how to become stronger and fitter and healthier. I was able to learn how to teach these things to other people. Like this is my mission. This is what I have to do. And I can't let anything get in the way. And again, it's very easy to, uh, to, uh, to allow things to get in the way when you're not as focused as you should be. Reality is anybody else who's joining your life, whether it's somebody you know that you want to date or get married to, should enhance that because I think that's part and parcel of it. And the problem, the, the issue, uh, the, the mistake that I made was that I was willing to let it go because I looked at these things as being mutually exclusive. And I think a lot of times what happens is that people will say like, uh, well, you know, like uh, things are going really well with this gal, but the only way that they're going to keep going well is if I kind of give up doing all these other things. Now, if it's drinking with your buddies and, you know, like watch, like binge watching mm-hmm. stuff on Netflix or playing video games all night long. Okay. Well, those, those are hobbies that are not actually pushing your career forward or making you a more valuable person. Right. That's you can see those a little easier coming down the line. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. If, it's, if, but if it's something like your, you know, your business or your mission, your purpose in life, um, yeah, you, re- you really can't give those up for anybody. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't care how much hate mail I get as a result. Like it just doesn't make, doesn't make any difference. I think any reasonable person would, would certainly agree to that. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, there's so many amazing lessons from the story there that you can unpack from there. Uh, you know, a couple of things that just popped out, like, you know, right there, uh, David data from his book, the way of a superior man is about always living your highest purpose. And that is yeah. the number one thing. And it's like, you have your family, you have other things, but that is the ultimate thing. Like everything else should be enhancing that. But when you mentioned that about, you know, when Pat offered you, uh, you know, that opportunity, it's like those gift horses that come to us a lot. There's a great line by Julia Cameron in her book, the artist's way of that all gift horses are looked in the mouth and often returned to sender. It's because it's not as much that we're afraid of failing, but we're afraid of the massive success. Oh yeah. 
And it's like, it's kind of like along that same line of, you know, sometimes these things just get thrown in your way. You can, and you can have different belief systems of this. This could be divine intervention. This could be, you know, faith. This could be just cosmos, whatever you want to call it. It's like, if this is really your highest purpose, things are going to come in your way. That's going to help you in that. And very easy, especially as, you know, I think, especially as guys too, is like to hold that pride in there of like, no, I can, you know, lift yourself up from your bootstraps. I can get this done and stuff. But it's like, no, those, those things are out there to help you. And it's like, so to see those things and not, you know, overthink it, maybe it is one thing, like, let me get right back to you. It's like, I got to do this one thing or so, but kind of probably in your head, I would assume like, you knew like, no, this is a right move to do. Yeah. And in fact, it's funny because I remember going out uh, and hanging out with this guy. I wouldn't call it a date because we didn't agree that it was a date. We were just hanging out. And, uh, and prior to that, she, I mean, I, she didn't, I don't think she even realized that I was interested in her because again, I had this way of, I think being a little subdued. I'm much better now at making my, my intentions a little clearer. Like now I would just say, look, let's go out on a date. Instead, I, I had to wait like until after I hung out with her like twice. And, but it, yeah, at any rate, like there were certain things that, that she was saying during the time we were hanging out. And this is not me criticizing or anything like that, but it was just things that I think would have disqualified a relationship in any case. Um, and I was like, I remember thinking to myself, like, probably isn't even a good idea to ask her out, but I, I have to do it because I just said I'm going to do it. And, um, you know, and again, eventually you, you start to learn that, like, I think um, never quitting and never giving up, I think it's a very good skill to have. And I think it's a very good characteristic to have, but every skill and every characteristic and every, you know, gift that you have is always going to be a double-edged sword because things done in excess will almost always become their opposites. And so it's like, from a training perspective, let's say you're really good at military pressing and bench pressing and push-ups and all this other stuff. And you do that to the, ex- to the exclusion of uh, an adequate amount of pulling movements, your shoulders are going to start to hurt eventually, yes. and your elbows. And so you're going you're gonna to suffer as a result of simply of, of uh, overindulging in your gift or, or the thing that you're, you're good at. And um, yeah, I, I, uh, it was always in my head like, this is probably what I really need to do. But because I had it in my head first that I'm going to ask this gal out. I need to do that first. And then I need to, and then I will decide, mm-hmm. but, um, but you're absolutely right. I think uh, for men in particular, I think it's very difficult for men to ask for help. And, uh, and I, and I mean, you know, like my, my dad, for instance, is very much like this, but it works very well for him because he's just of the mindset that like, okay, well, if I need to, you know, learn how to do this and want to do that, I'll just, I'll just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think if you're in a, he's not really in a creative field and that's not a criticism. I'm just saying he's like, it's just not, you know, the, the field that he's, that he's in. Um, it's something that's a bit, doesn't really require as much creativity. It requires knowledge and requires skill and, and, you know, what he does, but you know, he doesn't have to write books or, you know, articles and you know, all these other things. Right. Uh, so I feel like for me, like so much of my brain power goes into those things that it's like, I really just don't want to learn a ton of other things. It's, it, I'm not opposed to it. It's just not a necessity. Like we were talking about this before, right? Yeah. Um, but I had the mindset before that that's kind of what I had to do. I had to do everything on my own because that's just the way that you do it. And I remember um, toward the end of my time living in Israel, I guess I did this the whole time I was there. And of course, it was like, you know, life got very difficult because there were a lot of times, particularly in a country like Israel, where uh, cost of living is higher, people don't make as much money. You know, it's, it's not like, you know, it's not like the US in terms of, um, 
comfortable living. Mm-hmm. It's not to say you can't live comfortably there because many people do, but if you're an immigrant in particular, it's like, it just takes longer to build up your network and, you know, uh, right. and I, I knew plenty of people. So, but it, again, I didn't utilize a lot of those, uh, a lot of them, like I, like I could have, and I have a friend of mine, uh, who was former special forces, uh, you know, very like manly dude, uh, you know, martial artist, all this stuff. He was like, I, I think he asked something, something had happened and I, I just was going to try to take care of it on my own. And I was completely incapable of doing it. And he's like, why don't you just ask for my help? And I was like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, he's like, look, you know, I want to help you. And if you don't ask for my help when you need it, I'm going to start getting mad. And I was like, you know, he's right. Like, there's really no reason for me to try to reinvent the wheel every time I need to get something done. Like if something, somebody can help me, like, like it's basically just, it, it's the smart thing to do. It, it, there's nothing like, uh, there's nothing unmanly. I wasn't doing it to try to be manly, but it's like, there's nothing unmanly or un, uh, uh, untoward about asking for help when you need it. And so that him just saying that one thing really made a big impact because it made me think like, how many things am I doing the hard way, because I just, I just don't want to do it any other way. I just want to, I want to be able to say I conquered it. You can only do that so many times. And again, if you, depending on your situation or your circumstances, you might have better luck with it for certain things. But like, yeah, it was at that moment that I decided I was going to start to ask for help more often. And I think, you know, that was also right around the time. I don't remember if it was before or after or what, but I think it was right around the time that Pat invited me to, uh, to move to Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, and maybe if I hadn't had that conversation with him, I might have, I don't know what I would have done, to be very honest. Mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you. Yeah, well, and it's, you know, when you think about it too, if like everything that we do in this world, like there's a connection of some point, I mean, going back to when you had your kind of your year of yes, where you're just saying yes to everything, right? It's like, yeah. you know, if you go along that path of I'm going to do everything myself, right? With somebody offered to do, you know, ask you if you would do this in Australia, well, if you're in that mindset, you'd be like, no, forget that. I'm going to make my own thing and I'll figure out how to get to Australia on my own. It's like, no, dummy, the thing is right in front of you. Like, exactly. go enjoy it. When I talk, I talked with Rebecca Rouse a little while ago on the podcast uh, from Semper Stronger, Rebecca, an awesome girl, um, you know, phenomenal person in the community. And she talked about like her year of yes, which I absolutely love. Like, you know, if I'm asked to do any podcast, if I'm asked to write anything, if I'm asked to help anybody, just say yes. And I think it's a really good point, Alex, because so much, especially of people who want to go into their own business or do their own thing, it's like, do only what you want to do. Like, that's the life. Like, you can do what you want to do. I'm like, you know, there's really some merit to just saying yes to like everything in there. Like, yeah, maybe you're going to get stretched out a little thin for a little bit, but you know, maybe you're going to find an avenue that you didn't even know was available to you or a different connection. And I started doing that and then became, um, you know, connected with somebody who's been huge to me and help is Brian Grasso and his partners program, who just being around him and the work that he's done of his development and stuff, all of a sudden you just get different ideas and different energy around. Yeah. And I think that's just, you can apply that to business. You can apply that to strength. You can apply that to anything. Like if it's just kind of in, you know, watch Jim Carrey's yes, man, you know, get a little bit of thinking about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, just like those things of just kind of saying, yes, even if you're not comfortable with it, it's kind of like your cut cone knife story. It's like, you're just, you're building up a different skill of like yeah. seeing it from there. And it, it's, it's such a, it's an inspiring thing to see that, you know, what you came from of like, 
you know, not even thinking you're going to be a coach to then building a brand, building up, then moving all the way across the world into Israel, building it up again, and then losing it to even come back and do it again. You know, the word that you hate, you know, humbling in there, I could totally understand. From it works it, but... in this case. Normally I hate it because people misuse it. You know, they're like, yeah. I was watching, a, this is just a very small side yeah. note. I was watching, my, my favorite comedian is Greg Giraldo. He was like one of the funniest okay. And he had a, he had talking about, this is back in the early 2000s. He's like, they're gonna, there's gonna be a, I think he said Puerto Rican lady on the Supreme Court. And I'm assuming he's talking about Sotomayor. I, I don't remember when she was installed or whatever, but um, I guess maybe this would have been the mid 2000s. But anyway, he's like, um, and she said that it was, it was humbling to get the offer to, to join the Supreme Court. He's like, it, it's exactly the opposite. He's like, like, wow, it must have been a real kick in the face when the president called you and said he wanted to put you on the highest court of the land. So that's the, re- that's the problem that I have with people saying humbles, that it's like, yeah. they just use it wrong. You know, it's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when uh, it's like, what I think Dave Chappelle was the one when it's like, when people like praise you for that, instead of saying it, just be, be fun to just go back and be like, yep, well, I deserve it. It's so much more fun to say that because people don't expect it. And it's like funny, you know, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's also better that I, I hate this fake like humility and magnanimity. It's like, it's some people are, are, are humble to a fault and, and it's genuine. Other people are doing it because they think that they ought to. Mm-hmm. I like to just, you know, like, be sort of comical and somebody will be like, well, that was awesome. But like, yeah, I know. Yeah. You know, and just, well, just yeah. to get a laugh out of them. Exactly. Oh, that's, yeah. I think I might start using, well, I think the best word, right. Is grateful. Right. I mean, you could say yeah. you're grateful, you know, for of course. It. Yeah. And it's that's for the sure. same type of thing, but no, it's, I mean, you know, I think what you express too is, is really the use of the word passion. You know, I think that's, that's one of those words that annoys me, you know, as well yeah. as we say, I have a passion for something. And I remember talking with Dan John about this and I, I love it. It's like, you know, passion comes from the word, I think, passius to suffer, which yeah. like you suffer through it. So if you have a passion for it, but you never done it, you haven't suffered for anything like suffering through something that having a passion is when you do something, you build it up and then you lose it. And then you build it back up again. Like, that's going through some shit. You know, you're going through some muck of getting Absolutely. there. And, and that's where, I mean, that's why strength training is exciting. You know, it's like, kind of, you know, kind of learning something new and then seeing the beginning results that you get, but then going through the times where it's just, you're not seeing those quick results again. You don't lose body fat as fast as you did when you first started, you know, tweaking in your nutrition, but getting through those times, that's when you really find a different type of passion. And that's when you really find, I think what's what works best for you, you discover what is really the best path for you, because nobody can tell you exactly what this path is. You know, we have principles of how to get there, but, you know, to really do this in a way that you really enjoy doing it on an everyday basis is you got to discover it, what's best for you and going through a journey like you did, I would almost, you know, kind of not wish that on anybody because obviously there's a lot of pain for it, but at the same time, almost like knowing, like step back and and let them go through it because you know, what's going to happen at the end. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, a lot of it is you have to make decisions along the way, no matter what, like in, in his book, man's search for meaning, Viktor Frankl talks about, you know, between stimulus and response, there's a time where you can make a choice. And, uh, you know, that, and that was very helpful for me actually in in moving past uh, all that difficulty, because, because again, it's like, everybody's going to go through heartbreaks and people are going to have difficult times in their life. Um, and then the, the decision, and then you have to go through a time where you realize that everything that you do is based on a decision. Like everybody has habits, but it's, it, we make a decision every day not to try to change those habits if they're good or bad. So, you know, like when Pat offered me to move to Pennsylvania 
And I was like, okay, well, let me think about it. Because if I had just said yes right then and there, uh, you know, the story would have ended pretty much the same way. But I was still, I hadn't completely committed to making a decision between the stimulus, the offer to move to Pennsylvania and get is an extraordinarily generous offer, you know, um, and then uh, my decision to try to ask this other gal out on a date. It was like, it was, it was a hard one uh, decision for me because I, I saw at, you know, even after I'd asked her out and after she said, no, thank you. Um, like how close I could have been if she had said yes, like what would have happened next? Like maybe I would have been like, like I need to see it through to the end. Like, I I kind of owe it to her, you know, like, so like, again, it was very serendipitous and I, I didn't take it personally at all. I understood, you know, she's, she's got her reasons, you know, and, and, uh, and again, and she also had, had, gone through a heartbreak, a heartbreak recently too. So it was not like, it really wasn't, it wasn't anything that I took personally. I completely understood. But the point is, is that like, yeah, I was willing to uh, continue making the same decision only this time recognizing that I was doing what had previously been a habit. So now it was like on my radar and I made the decision anyway, and I could see myself doing it and how close I could have been to having to move in a different direction. And so then when this next gal came along, and regardless of the fact that I think we would have been like a far better match, like, you know, um, I realized that it's still not the right decision because it was not going to solve the problem that I had because that problem wasn't going to go away until I made a different decision. Mm-hmm. And, and it, yeah, I mean, it took like two years before I went from like crap to suck, you know, in, in my business skills, mm-hmm. but it was like every day I was just not going to quit. And I knew that that was the appropriate use of my, uh, intention to see everything to the bitter end because the end doesn't have to be bitter. Yes, but your stick to itiveness will determine uh, where things go. And if and if things look like they're going in the wrong direction, there's no problem with you know cutting your losses and saying I'm going to do something different. That's a skill that everybody has to learn how to do. Mm-hmm. For other people, the skill they are going to have to learn how to do is see things through to the end. And you know, like where I am now with what I'm doing, like I feel like I'm only getting started. You know, and I've I've been doing this since 2016. So it was really a very relatively small amount of time, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the online business side of things. Um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like I've still got a really long time to go before I really uh, peak. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and I'm happy to say I'm doing very, very well uh, mm-hmm. as it is right now. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it really does come back to that. You have to slow down, think about the decisions you're going to make. Am I going to take the easy route, which is kind of programmed into me? Or uh, am I going to make one small decision that maybe a little bit harder, but is going to kind of start to nudge me in the right direction so that it, mm-hmm. I grow, I gain the strength to start making harder decisions as time goes on. Right. So I can guide myself in the direction that I need to go. Yeah. You know, I think the concept of choice too, and making decisions, it's, you know, I think it's so important too, to know that you can make a bad, like to actually explore making a bad decision or the wrong oh. decision. You know, it's kind of, you know, you know, Jordan Peterson and Carl Jung, you know, mentions Carl Jung with the shadow work. And I've, you know, yeah. I've looked at that a lot in my own life. And I've talked with people about it, where to make actually a choice is to understand all the bad choices that you can make as well. Yeah. It's like, and actually spending some time of doing that, of being, so really the only way to make the right choice for you is to also explore all of the bad choices that you can make as well. It's kind of, it's aligning yourself with the monstrous side of what you can do. Like, to be a good person, you have to also, the only way to choose to be a good person is to actually know that it's also a choice you can make to be a bad person and an asshole. 
and you have to have the ability to do those things too. you like, there's no, like, you know, I think he, he's mentioned, you know, like, uh, harmless people aren't virtuous because like you're virtuous. If you have the ability to be harmful or violent or really terrible and you choose not to be, yes. it's like, it's why when we see somebody who's like, you know, real alpha male, big, you know, strong, tough, you know, knows how to fight, whatever. And they're kind and they're, and mm-hmm. they're caring. We appreciate that a lot more than when it's, you know, somebody who's kind of like, uh, let's say mousy and, you know, uh, harmless or whatever, because it's like, well, what other choice do you have? That's just, you know, the default, you can't, you can't do anything else. Um, so yeah, I, but, and the same thing applies not only with, you know, developing, um, yourself, like your shadow, like you talked about, and like Jordan Peterson talks about a great deal, uh, but really everything you, you have the choice. And, uh, I, I think that the one thing that's sorely lacking, uh, for a lot of people today is the willingness to take personal responsibility and the willingness to say, okay, either it's not a priority for me to do this, so I'm just not going to do it. And then you're okay with it versus I really want to do that, but I'm afraid of doing anything different. So I'm just going to keep doing what I've always done. Yes. You know, like we talked a little bit about language learning earlier. I really like learning languages, but I don't begrudge people. They don't want to learn any other languages or if it's not a priority, it's not a priority. Right. But I respect that. Like if people say, yeah, you know, I just don't really see the, the point. It's like, okay, yeah, there's no, you know, like I, I'm not like incredulous or flabbergasted, mm-hmm. but if somebody says, oh, I would love to learn Spanish, but I just, I just, you know, I, I don't think I have the time. Cause my, my the third, the first thing I'll always say is I'll, I'll show them how they could make the time and how it doesn't have to be something crazy. Like, you know, there are these free resources and this and that. And if that doesn't sway them and then it's like, okay, well then just say it's not a priority. Like there's no shame in that, but don't lie and say like, oh, I would love to like, yeah, everybody would love to do all sorts of stuff that they're not willing to do. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Just say it's not a priority. It's not, mm-hmm. there's no shame in it. The shame isn't lying about that. The lying to yourself, you know, not mm-hmm. to other people, but lying to yourself about it. It's- it, it's such an important concept. And I think it's, it's just so important to have these conversations more and more about it because it, yeah. I mean, it is, it comes down to, I mean, personal responsibility, but it's also like, if you, it's okay to explore those other ideas totally. that maybe you don't want to do, but it's just because if you explore, it doesn't mean that now your willingness to do it. It's like, I think, I think it's just a, it's a huge part in hearing a story like yours of, you know, you could have very easily gone the other path. Like who knows what, you know, those girls could have said and you would have been, or maybe they would have said yes. And right now off the top of your head, you'd be like, Oh no, like I really want to go to the States. Totally. And do it. But that's how it happened. And that's how it exactly. works. So, and, um, and you know, things always could have been far worse, you know, like yes. I, I'm fortunate that, that it was, again, it was like a painful experience, particularly like, you know, the, the breakup at the time was a very painful experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, again, it could it always could have been worse. There are a lot of things that, that could have gone uh, far worse, and so like it sucked. But I know people who've gone through far worse things, and you know, and they've they've rebounded from it, and they've they've uh, prospered regardless. So, um, but I think because people, it's so particularly in the Western world, people live relatively comfortably. I think it's harder to convince people to do the things that are uncomfortable. Um, and you don't have to be. I don't believe in this whole idea of like you got to get outside your comfort zone. Um, Matt Fury has a very interesting approach to that. And, uh, and it basically, it's about, you know, you expand your comfort zone by not stepping all the way outside of it, but you do like little things that end up, you know, making right, uh, right. bigger waves later on down the, down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, some people are, are, um, 
many people could make different decisions if they really wanted to. And I think they should be encouraged to do that. And they should understand that there is going to be some discomfort. And if you want to chase something like starting a business or learning a new skill or whatever, like it's just, there's always going to be some discomfort to it because it's like, that's just kind of part and parcel with the, with the, uh, the experience. So, Mm -hmm. um, we can't mistake discomfort for pain or discomfort for suffering. Uh, passion, if you will. <laughs> and incidentally, I don't think people should follow their passions for that precise reason, because it's like, there is a lot of suffering that goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're willing to, to take up that, that burden, you know, go for it. But yeah, I think everybody can do more than they think. They just need to be encouraged. And that's one of the things I think uh, as fitness professionals is our, is our goal is to get people to agree to doing something a little bit more than they would have otherwise, and then agree to continue to do that as time goes on. And that is where they end up doing stuff that otherwise would have been extremely uncomfortable mm-hmm. and has now become something that it's empowering and uh, allows them to see themselves as more than just an object, but rather a subject, somebody who's making things happen and somebody who can take the reins and steer their ship wherever they want to. I think that's a good place to, to close out on this, man. That was awesome. Yeah. So I dude- appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's always a blast to talk to you. You know, really is. And uh, there's even a million more things that I want to talk to you about, but we'll save it for another time and we'll get you going from there. So, um, dude, if people want to follow your stuff more, kind of get in, I know you have your nine minute program that you have. What's the best yeah. place that we can direct them? Yeah, I would say, okay, well, first and foremost, uh, I love my parents dearly, but they gave me a very funny spelling name. So I, I'm going to give you two options. Okay. Now, number one, you can go to nine minute and that will, you can, you can get my nine minute kettlebell and body weight challenge there. Uh, and incidentally, if you like original strength, um, yeah, you're, you're going to like it because they're, uh, it's very heavily influenced by, by some of the movements in original strength. It's oriented around like gait pattern movements that have a, a big impact on all the other, uh, uh, exercises and stuff like that, that we like to do with, with kettlebells and calisthenics. Uh, but it's very uh, gentle on the system, meaning you're not going to get completely burned out. So you can do it in conjunction with any other program that you're doing. You're probably just going to find that you'll move better. You'll feel better. You'll get stronger. Uh, you'll improve your stamina, your coordination. Um, and again, it, as the name implies, it's only going to take nine minutes. Uh, now, if for some reason, nine minute challenge.com is too difficult to, to remember, or it slips your mind, you can always look me up online. Like I said, my parents spelled my name, uh, in a way that uh, is people think it's fake or stylized. It's not, it's like, it's genuinely spelled like this. Now, my name is Alex, but it's not spelled A-L-E-X. No, no. It's A-L-E-K-S. K is in Catherine. S is in Samantha. We're talking a lot about girls earlier, so I figured I should use <laughs> female names to remind people. So A-L-E-K-S. My last name is Salk. In. Salkin. Okay. So like Jonas Salk, the, the guy who invented the polio vaccine. Or was it, no, was it a polio vaccine? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, S-A-L. K-I-N. So alexalkin.com, A-L-E-K-S-S-A-L-K-I-N.com. Uh, so if you like a challenge and you want to be a little uncomfortable, you look that up, A-L-E-K-S-S-A-L-K-I-N.com. Otherwise, 9minutechallenge.com. Um, and you will, you will be uh, whisked away into <laughs> a world of strength and uh, all sorts of other fun stuff. Love it, man. So, dude, you're the best. I appreciate it, man. You're awesome. My pleasure. And I'm glad I was able to give you the exclusive story, the true origin story of the Hebrew hammer. It is. Oh, I think that's what we're going to call it.
Yes. Good. I, I, I hope people will enjoy it. Perfect. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much, everyone. I'll catch you on the next one. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you like the show, please give it a five-star review, give it a thumbs up, all that good stuff. And if you want to get the inside scoop on all new episodes coming up, behind-the-scenes insights, and free training resources, then you can join the Strength Connection private Facebook group now. Just go to Facebook groups, type in the Strength Connection, and join in. Also, don't forget to subscribe. See you soon.